and bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be up here tonight because as Cindy had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, God really placed this message in my heart. And I knew that he wanted me to present it to each one of you tonight. And I truly believe that this is a message directly from God to you. And he's just using me as his voice. So the title of my presentation tonight is Do This in Remembrance of Me. And what God was revealing to me is just as there are two parts to communion, that is interrelated with the two parts of why Jesus was crucified. So we're going to take a look at both parts of those tonight. Part one of communion is the wine or the grape juice. And Matthew 26, 28 says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now this makes it very clear that the wine or the grape juice is, represents Jesus' blood and it's for the forgiveness of our sins. And I think that that's why so many churches focus on the forgiveness of sins. Even when we take communion in our churches, they talk about the wine or the grape juice and being the forgiveness of sins. They don't talk too much about what the bread really represents. But as we study scriptures here tonight, you will see clearly what the bread represents. Part two is the bread. And in 1 Corinthians 11.24, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was telling his disciples, I want you to remember why I died for you. It's so important. The forgiveness of sins is a beautiful, beautiful gift that we have. But that's not the only reason why Jesus was crucified. And it's important that we know what he went through and why he went through it. So let's take a look at part one. What we learn from the scriptures is that blood needs to be shed in order for us to receive forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Now, atonement is in just another word for reconciliation. Atonement's probably used more in the Old Testament, where in the New Testament we probably hear the word reconciliation. But as I researched both of these words, they're really interchangeable with one another. And I broke these words down piece by piece. And what the definition I came up with was blood needed to be shed to make things better for all of the wrongs and all of the sins that we have committed. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The word remission, actually the Greek word for remission, is aphesis. And what aphesis means is it's a total release from bondage, a total release of imprisonment. It's the forgiveness and the pardon of our sins without penalty 
and without punishment. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. Grace is such a powerful word, and every Christian should understand the meaning of the word grace. Grace means that we receive something that we don't deserve. Because we're sinners, we don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to be reconciled with God our Father. And we don't deserve to have eternal life. But because of God's grace, he does give us forgiveness of sins. He gives us reconciliation with God the Father, even though we don't deserve it. And we do receive eternal life, even though we don't deserve it. Mercy, on the other hand, is not receiving what you do deserve. So because we're sinners, we deserve to go to hell. But because of God's mercy, we are not going to hell. We are going to have eternal life with him on the new heaven and the new earth. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us all from all sin. And finally, Colossians 1.14 says, in, him who I'm sorry, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to take a look at the Old Testament. And we're going to take a look at the New Testament as well tonight. But we're going to start in the Old Testament. Your Bible has two sections the Old Testament, and the New Testament. The Old Testament was done completely before Jesus Christ was born. And the New Testament starts when Jesus Christ was born, but it really wasn't fulfilled until he was crucified. So people under the Old Testament lived under a different covenant than what we live under today. A covenant is a contract between God and his people. And God never, ever breaks his covenant. Many times when we look at the Old Testament, we see that the Israelites love God, and they worship God, and they have one God, our God and Father in heaven. But then they kind of forget about all the good things that God has done for them, and they start to veer away, and they start to worship other gods or other idols. And God never tears up the contract and says, well, you broke your covenant contract, so I'm done with you. God never said that. He will never break his covenant with his people. He just waited, and he said, look, I want to be your God, and if you choose me as your God, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with keeping you safe from your enemies. I'm going to bless your flocks. I'm going to bless your crops. I'm going to give you good health. I will provide for you and take care of you. I want to be your God. But if you choose other gods, then there's going to be consequences to that. And you're going to have to live with your own consequences, your own choices, because I'm not going to force you to use me as your God. So for the purpose of tonight's presentation, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. There were many, many laws. They were called Mosaic Laws. But we're just going to look at the Ten Commandments tonight. So people living the, under the Old Testament lived under these commandments. 
Thou shalt not have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And thou shalt not covet. Well, Jesus tells us that the, that the laws, all of the laws, and all of the commandments can really be summarized down to two. In Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34, we read that, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them said, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's take another look at these Ten Commandments again. As you'll notice, the first three commandments are all about putting God first in your life, loving him, having only one God, him. The remaining seven is about loving your neighbor and about respecting other people. Even commandment four that talks about keeping the Sabbath and keeping it holy, this was a day of rest, but not only for us. We were commanded under commandment number four to make sure that our maidservants didn't work, our manservants didn't work on the Sabbath. We weren't even supposed to let our animals work on the Sabbath. So even commandment number four had to do with loving your neighbor and respecting them. Deuteronomy 5.27 tells us that the people agreed to keep the laws. They said, tell us all that the Lord our God says to you. We will hear and we will do it. But what we learned was it was impossible for anyone to keep the law. No one could keep the law except for Jesus Christ. Romans 3.20 tells us, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So what the law was doing was it was teaching us what was right and what was wrong. For the first 2,000 years from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of Moses, there weren't any laws. People didn't know that it was wrong to commit murder or wrong to commit adultery or wrong to steal because without the law, they had no knowledge of their sin. So God placed these laws so that they would know what was right and what was wrong. But Romans 3.22 tells us, For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's impossible for all of us to keep the law. We cannot. James 2.10 says, Forever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of them all. See, we humans, we kind of try to rank the severity of law because we want to be better people than the person sitting next to us. Well, yeah, I, I stole a pen from work, but I've never robbed a bank. But in God's eyes, it's all the same. You steal a pen from work, 
You're guilty of breaking all the laws. And we just can never be perfect no matter how hard we try. Now, does that give us the right to keep on sinning? No, because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And it's important for us to repent and try to be the best people that we can possibly be. But the law is showing us that we just can't do it. We're humans. Jesus used the parable that it's not healthy people who need a doctor. It's sick people who need a doctor. And what he meant by that is it's not righteous people who need a savior. It's sinners that need a savior. Everyone sitting in this room is a sinner, and you need Jesus Christ to save you. And that's what Jesus did when he came to earth and he was crucified. He came to save us. So what we learn is that Jesus forgave our sins once and for all. Hebrews 10.10 says, By that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This means that Jesus Christ, when he was crucified, he took all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. And look at this in in Hebrews 10.17. He says, then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Your slate is completely wiped clean. People think that God is up there and he's got this long scroll and at the top of the scroll is your name. And he's saying, oh yeah, when you were three years old and your parents told you to go to bed and you said no, well that was dishonoring your parents and I'm keeping track of that. Or when you were six years old and you scribbled crayon all over your parents' wall and they said, Johnny, did, did you write on my wall? No, my brother did it. Oh, write that down too. See, people are condemned and they feel convicted. But God is not keeping a records of your rights and your wrongs. Your sins are washed away. And God sees us as righteous in his eyes. So today, we live under the new covenant. And what the new covenant is, is that we are saved by God's grace. And we are no longer under the law as the people in the Old Testament were. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now God's part is done. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, it was once and for all. But he gives you a choice. He's not going to force you. You are not a robot and he's not going to program you to follow him. He gives you the choice. And you have the choice of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and worshiping only him. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So grace is a gift. 
And your salvation is a gift. Think of God leaving you a package at your door. You have many options about what you want to do with that package. You can look at that package and see that it's from God and say, oh no, I don't want that. Right, return to sender on the package and just mail it back. You don't want anything to do with it. Or you can take that gift in your house and open it up and think, wow, this is a great gift. But then you end up sticking it in your closet and you're never using it. How many know that's not going to do you any good? God wants a continual relationship with you. Not a one-time deal and have it done. He wants a relationship, a personal relationship with you. Your other option is you can open up this box and think, wow, this is the greatest gift I've ever received. And you start using that gift every single day. And then it's so great that you start sharing it with other people. And you know what happens? God sends another package to your door. He will continue to bless you. The more you use his gifts and share it with other people, he will continue to bless you. It's an example. Jesus used a lot of parables, and he would relate it to the people of those times. So he, he had a lot of parables about farming or about fishing. Well, I like to use the example of an apple seed. You get one little apple seed, it's really not much of a gift, right? You can't do much with it. I mean, if, if you eat it, it's really not going to satisfy you. But if you plant that seed in the ground and you give it good soil and you water it, make sure it gets its sunlight, you cultivate it, you take care of it, and it grows up into a beautiful tree. And on that tree is all this fruit with lots of apples. And you know what you get? More apple seeds. So you plant those apple seeds. And after a while, you have a lot of trees with more fruit and more seeds. And before you know it, you have a whole orchard full of apple trees. Romans 6.14 tells us, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, you are under grace. So going back to the Old Testament, we learn that the way that they had bloodshed was that they had to sacrifice animals. And they had to do this continuously. So what would happen is the man or the head of the household, he would take a goat or a sheep, and even poor people, they would take like a dove or a pigeon, depending on how poor they were, and they would take it to the priest, and the priest would inspect it and make sure that it was a male, about a year old, and without defect. And then the man, the head of the household, he would lay his hands on top of that animal, and he would confess his sins. And this was symbolic of him taking his sins and putting it on this innocent animal. Then they would bind up the legs of the animal, and the man, the head of the household, would slit the throat of the animal. And as the blood drained out, 
the priest would catch it in a bowl. Now this was the most humane way there was of killing an animal, really. It was fast. The animal probably died within a minute, two minutes. It was relatively painless. Once the animal was dead, the man at the head of the household, he would take the knife and he would open up the animal and he would return, he would uh, take out all of the vital organs and he would separate the fat because the fat represented sin. And then his job was done. But the priest would carry on with the sacrifice. He would take this bowl full of the animal blood up to the altar. And the altar was square. And at each one of the corners of the altar were these posts. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on all four posts of the altar. Then he would lay the animal on top of the altar and it would be burned up as a sacrifice to, the, to our Lord. Now this had to be done over and over and over again. It wasn't a one time and it was done. This had to be done continually. But what we learn, the people who live under the new covenant, Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. John Chapter 1, verse 29 says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 7 said, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silenced, he did not open his mouth. Now, this scripture is in reference to probably if you go to like a Good Friday service or an Easter service, you might hear this Bible verse. When Jesus was being questioned by Pontius Pilate, Jesus was silent, just as the lamb is. He didn't answer Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate said, why aren't you answering me? Don't you know I have the power to save your life? Well, Jesus knew it wasn't Pontius Pilate who had the power to save his life. And Jesus knew that for God's will to be done, he had to go through with the, with the crucifixion for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. So the next section I'm going to talk about is the day Jesus was crucified. And it's going to get a little bit graphic, the things I'm going to say. And the pictures up on the screen might be a little bit graphic. But it's so important that you understand what Jesus did for you. And once we understand what Jesus did, we can then look at the scriptures and see why he did it. What was the purpose? So the first thing that Jesus endured was a flogging. This is also known as scourging. And it was very brutal. The Roman soldiers really knew how to torture people. And they would take the person, and first they would strip the person naked. And this was just humility, humiliation. It was awful. 
to be stripped naked in front of all these witnesses. And then they would tie him up. They would handcuff him to a post. And they would whip him. It was customary to whip him 39 times. But as you can see, this isn't an ordinary whip. A whip that we think about has one extension on it made of leather. This particular one is called a flagrum, and it has three extensions on the whip. And at the end of the whip are these lead balls, and embedded in the lead balls are sheep bone. So it was designed when the person was whipped, it would grab hold of their skin and just tear it open. This flagrum up here has three extensions on it. And if Jesus was beaten, whipped 39 times, that was really like he was receiving at least 117 whippings. There was significant blood loss, and they would beat their prisoners almost to the point of death. And look at what Isaiah said. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. After Jesus endured this terrible beating, the soldiers would mock him. So he was humiliated, he was physically beaten, and then he was also emotionally and mentally beaten and broken down. Next, Jesus received a crown of thorns. And you can see from this picture, this isn't tiny little rose thorns. These thorns were probably an inch and a half to three inches in length. And many theologians, they're not quite sure what plant it came from, but there were many plants in the area that were poisonous, had poisonous thorns just like this. So this crown was probably poisonous, and as it penetrated through his skin, the poison would, would be released through his bloodstream and circulated throughout his entire body. Next, after this brutal beating, they forced Jesus to carry his own cross. But we learn that Jesus was so weak, almost to the point of death, he couldn't carry his cross. So they forced a man named Simon from Cyrene to carry the cross for him. And they went up to a place called Golgotha, which was known as the place of the skull. After all that had taken place, we finally get to the actual crucifixion. So they laid the cross on the ground, and Jesus laid on top of the cross with his arms extended and his feet one over the other, and his legs were probably bent at a 45-degree angle. And they took these huge nails, and one nail went into his left hand, one into his right hand, and a third nail went into both of his feet. Then when they lifted the cross up, it had to go into this huge hole, this very deep hole, 
And you know, they weren't gentle when they placed the cross in this hole. So this cross just went down deep into the hole. Jesus was literally in pain from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And he hung on that cross for six hours. And do you know what the cause of death is with crucifixion? It's suffocation. So that means every time Jesus wanted to take a breath, he hung there on the cross and he would have to pull himself up in those nails in his hands and push himself up through that nail through both of his feet and straighten out his legs. Every time he just wanted a simple breath. And he did that for six hours. So my question to you is, why? Why was the sacrifice of Jesus so brutal and so excruciating when those animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament slit the throat, dead in a couple of minutes, it was done and over with? Jesus probably endured, I'm guessing, at least nine hours of torture from the time he was beaten, mocked, had the crown of thorns on his head, had to carry his cross, nailed to the cross, and then hung on the cross for six hours. That was probably at least nine hours of torture. Well, God has a reason for everything that he does. And there was a reason why Jesus had to endure all of that torture. So let's take a look at, at uh, the two parts of communion and the two parts of crucifixion again. Part one is the wine or the grape juice. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of the sins. Part two is the bread. And Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's look at some scriptures and see why his body had to be broken. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and he lived probably 700 years before Jesus was even born. And in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for his peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, this is from the New King James Version, and I know that the King James Version also uses the word grief. The Hebrew word for grief is koli. And what koli means is malady, anxiety, calamity, disease, 
and sickness. In fact, some of the other translations will substitute the word grief with the word sickness. And to me, that makes more sense because when I think of the word grief, I think about when my father died, I was just really grief-stricken. I think of it more of an emotional pain that I went through, not a physical one. But what this scripture is truly saying is that Jesus took our diseases and our sicknesses. When did Jesus do that? When he was crucified. The Hebrew word for healed is rapha, and that means to cure, to heal, to repair, and to make whole. So that word healed really means healed in the English language. Now Isaiah, even though he was an Old Testament prophet, he was, a, he was the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And both Isaiah 53 verses 4 and Isaiah 53 verse 5 are quoted in the New Testament. So let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17 says, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Again, Jesus bore our sicknesses. And the word infirmity means a physical weakness or ailment. And the word ailment means a physical disorder or illness. This is making it very clear that not only did Jesus take our sins on that cross with him, he took our physical, mental, and emotional sicknesses, illnesses, diseases, our pains, our sorrows, all of it. He took all of it away from us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now look at this. This is saying you have been healed. It is past tense. It's not saying you're going to be healed when you get your resurrected body, you have to wait until you get your resurrected body to be healed. No, this is past tense. You have been healed. He is talking about your mortal body. The body that you are sitting in right now is the body that has been healed. The Greek word for healed is iaomai. And that also means, just like the Hebrew word, to cure, to heal, and to make whole. You see, God is our God today and forever. He's not just going to be our God in our resurrected bodies when we're living in paradise, on the new heaven, and on the new earth. No, He is our God today. He takes care of us today. He wants to provide for you. He wants to heal you. 
He wants to bless you in so many ways today and forever. So let's take a look again at communion, the two parts of communion and the two parts of crucifixion. It's so important when you are believing on God for something that you have scripture. Because in your Bible, this contains all of God's promises for you. It contains all of his blessings for you. But if you don't know what's in here, just like putting it in your closet and never looking at it, it's not going to do you any good. So if you are believing God for something, make sure you have scriptures memorized that you meditate on day and night and that you are believing that God is going to fulfill for you. You expect it. It is yours. You claim it. The scripture that I meditate on and that I claim for myself is Psalms 103, verses 2 and 3. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives you of all of your sins and heals you of all of your diseases. That is the most important and there could ever be. He didn't just die for the forgiveness of your sins. He died so you could be healed today. So part one of communion is the wine or the grape juice representing Jesus' blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And part one of the crucifixion is that our Lord forgives us of all of our sins. Part two of communion is the bread representing Jesus' body broken for us and by his wounds you have been healed. Part two of the crucifixion is our Lord heals all of our diseases. Jesus did this for you. Don't let what he did be in vain. Don't let all that torture that he went through be for nothing. Don't reject that gift. Embrace that gift. Cherish that gift. Because it's a gift directly from God to you. But you have to accept it. Even though Jesus' part was done 2,000 years ago, you still have the choice. And only you can make that choice, what you're going to do with that gift. So tonight, we are going to take communion. And I just want to reiterate what Cindy said if you don't feel comfortable taking communion, that's, that's okay. You don't have to. But I really hope that you've been enlightened tonight and that you will take communion and for the first time really, really concentrate and meditate and thank God for what he did for you. And I, I hope that you have been enlightened and that you are blessed tonight. I decided that instead of me giving communion, we're going to watch 
a short little video by Joseph Prince. Joseph Prince is a pastor who is on television, and he is all about God's grace and God's goodness and God's blessings for us and God's supernatural healings for us. And so we're going to have Joseph Prince lead, lead us in communion tonight. So if you've never used these little communion cups before, there's actually two lids. So the first lid is like a little cellophane, and it will open up to a little piece of the bread. And then the second lid will open up to the wine, well, grape juice in this case, will open up to the grape juice. So while Cindy's passing those out, I just want to encourage you. I want to leave you with a word of encouragement that if you need healing, don't ever give up because God's word, it really is his promise to you. And for me, this became more real to me than what's going on here and what's going on here. And all of you, that will happen for you too. I also want to encourage you to keep coming to Cindy's meetings. And I'll give you three reasons why you need to keep coming. First of all, you need to be surrounded with like-minded people. A lot of people aren't taught this out in the real world or in your churches back home. But here, you learn the truth and other people believe it. And so they're going to believe with you and they're going to encourage you. So it's important to come. The second reason is because Cindy is really anointed. And she has just this incredible teaching and she will feed you week after week after week with the word of God. She gives so many Bible scriptures in her presentations. And you know it's the truth. And the truth will set you free. And if you can't make it to a meeting, then go to her website and listen to one of her recordings for free. Get one of the books that she has either written personally or one of the books that she recommends. Or you can go to Andrew Womack's website and listen to any of his messages for free as well. The third reason why you need to keep coming to these meetings is because Cindy has a whole prayer ministry team that knows the right way to pray for you. When you go back home, if people aren't taught what you're learning here today, their negativity and their doubt can really influence you from getting your healing, from getting your blessings. But when you come here, the prayer ministry team really knows how to pray for you in the right way. They're not going to hem and haw and say, well, you know, if it's God's will, would you please heal this person? Pretty please, maybe, you know. That's the wrong prayer to receive. The people here know that it's always Jesus' will to heal you. Always. He never told one person, hey, I'm sorry. My will for you is to have this illness, this sickness, disease. He never told one person, well, hey, I, I, I'm trying to teach you a lesson here. 
you know, because perseverance builds up character and character builds up hope. Jesus never said that to anybody. And he doesn't want that for you. He wants you to be healed. So come here and get the right prayer and they will pray with you in agreement for what you specifically are believing for and what you have faith that God is going to do for you. So after communion, I'm going to turn things back over to Cindy and she will lead us in the prayer portion of our meeting.